Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero. This episode, we've made history. This is our uh, first time that we've had a repeat interviewee here on Straight Out of Combat Radio. He is a published book author, a decorated Marine. Uh, he wrote the book Echo and Ramadi. You're going to like this episode. And thank you for listening. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. This episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero and hosted by the Heroes Media Group, has been here before. He's been very, very, very busy with his book, Echo and Ramadi. I met Scott Husing uh, two years ago in Saskatchewan, Canada. At that time, he wasn't rich and famous like he is now. But let me tell you a little bit about Scott. He is a retired United States Marine Corps infantry major and has over 24 years of service, both as an enlisted Marine and as a commissioned officer. His career spanned 10 deployments, and he conducted operations in over 60 countries worldwide. So needless to say, when I say Scott Husing is well-traveled, that's more than an understatement. During his numerous deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Horn of Africa, He planned, led, and conducted hundreds of combat missions under some of the most austere and challenging conditions, needless to say. As a Marine infantry officer in 2006, Scott had the privilege to command Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, as part of the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, MEU, Special Operations Capable, SOC, well, attached to 1st of the 9th Infantry Battalion, Manchu. 1st Brigade Combat Team, Ready 1st, United States Army, USA, as part of the surge strategy in Al-Anbar Province, Iraq. Scott's book, like I mentioned before, Echo and Ramadi, is getting good play. It's a great book, and I'm privileged and honored and humbled again to have Major Husing here with me on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Hey, Scott. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. I first want to dispel, I don't know about the rich or famous part, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the the it, it's been a great year since we launched the book. Not even a year yet, but uh, and we met well before Saskatchewan. Well, not physically, but we were pen pals through Bravo 748, we would call each other and we would share our stories. And we were kind of connected as veterans even before we met face to face, which I think is kind of a, a tribute to the spirit that we share as those who have served. And everybody's got a different story of how they serve, but we've been friends for longer than that. And then when we got together in Canada, that was just a great <laughs> opportunity. I mean, we had a, we had a blast up there too. I mean, you and I were kind of the old guys on scene, you know, running rough shot on the younger dudes who are getting a little crazy, but it was, it was all to help vets who were struggling with post-max stress. And it was, it was a great time, but thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. You know, when I say rich and famous, it's, you know, it's because, and I, and I mean this Scott, and you're so right. We have known each other shoot going on four years now. It seems it goes back, but uh, you know, you have been, first of all, the story is fantastic. We're going to get into the book, but You've been busy, man. I mean, I see you everywhere. And the people, uh, the Americans that you're associating with, you know, uh, the Marines and the Army and all the branches of service and even what you're doing with the nonprofit, you know, you again, it's an understatement that, you know, moss doesn't grow under your boots. So as a tribute to you and the spirit you just mentioned, uh, serving your country in the way that you did. And I understand how important leadership is to you and you know, thank you again to, to come back to the show. So let's get started. You know, you talked about your journey this past year or less than a year since the book launched. You know, what's been and I really want to talk about the book and about leadership and all the things. But 
You know, what's been the best thing about writing this story, you know, Echo and Ramadi? Tell me about that. The best thing has been meeting so many people throughout the last, it's been 11 months. We launched February 20th last year on Fox and Friends with Brian Kilmeade. And through the course of the last year, I've met so many amazing people. And when we first launched, I used to say the book was about the fighting and the friction and the brotherhood. And I thought it was just another war story, but it has really become this story of people. And what I described as this power of human connection and the people in the story, the Marines and the soldiers and the families really sit at the front of the stage now. And the bloody streets that we fought on in Ramadi merely served as a backdrop to this story, which I wrote as a tribute to them, all of their service and sacrifice. But throughout all the media and doing a ton of radio and TV and podcasts and shows like yours and so many others that support veterans, I have met the best people. And sometimes it's in person where you're in studio or where you're on the street. And sometimes it's through emails or through my website or an instant message on social media where a total stranger will have read the book and they'll reach out to me and tell me how much they enjoyed it or how important it was to them, how it helped them. And I suppose when I wrote it, it wasn't this massive catharsis for me, but I did think that by sharing that story, sharing part of my story would help serve as some sort of portal for other veterans and our Gold Star families to help heal a little bit. And that's come through in hundreds, if not thousands of emails that I've gotten from so many people. And there's so many great ones. I share some of them online, but that's been the best part is meeting and connecting with so many people. That's pretty cool, you know, and when you can add the human element to to life and living and especially something as harrowing as combat experience, it may it makes it all more real. I know some of the conversations we had well in Canada and you weren't just joking. I think we were the older guys there, but you know, you talk we talked about leadership. A lot of our conversations circulated around leadership and what that meant and how that, you know, tell 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 me about your focus as a as a United States Marine Corps officer you know, boots on the ground in that environment. Tell me about that, Scott. Well, I had a long career that led up to that because I was prior enlisted. I'd I'd gone to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then went to college, you know, as I I told you. And then I went back in the Marine Corps as a commissioned officer because I still really wanted to serve and kind of pay back everything the Marine Corps gave to me. And then some 15 years later, that's when I was thrust into the deadliest city in Iraq, which was Ramadi. And that's not just hyperbole. When I say it's the deadliest city in Iraq, we lost more soldiers and Marines in that city at that time during the surge in 06, 07 than we did in any other place. And that's important because I'd never want that battle to fall under the shadows of other significant battles like the, the Fallujahs or the Baghdads or the Kandahars, any of these wars that we've been fighting for the last 14 years. We're still fighting today, regardless of what our administration is saying on mainstream media today about we've defeated uh, ISIS and, and the caliphate has crumbled. It's not. We're still fighting. And, and as a commander in that situation, John, yeah, we weren't fighting the politics. We weren't fighting policies. We weren't fighting strategies. We were fighting the enemy day in and day out. That's what we did. So to lead and inspire 18, 19 year old kids at that time was a significant challenge because I was a commander, a captain with, you know, 35 years of life experience. I'd been to combat several times before that. So I looked at things through a completely different lens. And you got to remember, I'm leading 250 young Marines and soldiers and sailors. And a year before, they were probably on the high school football team. I mean, that's the kind of context that listeners need to understand is, it, within a very short time frame, they, they transitioned from being this pimply faced kid in high school, going to the prom or, you know, hanging out and jocking around with their friends to being thrust into that situation where we were fighting day in and day out, sometimes five, six, seven times a day in direct contact with a well-trained enemy force. So that's the type of context I like to put in, because I think it's not only a testament to these young Marines and soldiers 
to the families and the towns where they come from, where they're raised, why they joined the military. And then the military in and of itself on what a great institution it is to train and prepare these young men and women for the, the immense responsibility that is thrust on them. Just, just by bearing the title of soldier or Marine. And that doesn't include all of the daily tasks that I was constantly throwing at them in these challenges that they faced on the battlefield. It was remarkable at how well they performed. It, it never ceased to amaze me. Yeah, definitely some great points. And, you know, let me ask you this. I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it in your own words, sir. Did you know what you were fighting for? Yeah, this is a good question, and it's one I get asked often. I'm not sure the answer is always the same, but it, the bumper sticker that most people read is "We fight for each other," and that sounds grandiose. It sounds patriotic, and we do. We fight for each other. Uh, the literal question, what we were fighting for, I don't think has ever been answered. Uh, no one in any administration up until this point has ever really defined what winning is, what victory is. And that's a tough thing. And although we were busy killing the enemy, uh, which was hard enough in and of itself because they were a faceless, ununiformed enemy, uh, it was very difficult to put that into some sort of uh, context for anyone fighting. I don't care if you're a private at the lowest level or you're a senior staff officer. We never had a definition from our political officials, from our general officers, our flag officers on what winning was, what were we going to get out of it? And to this day, we still don't. And I think that's very difficult. And oftentimes I get asked the question, well, do you regret the, the blood you shed and the people you lost and the treasure we've expended in that region in the Middle East? And I say, no, not, not at all. None of us sit around and look in our, you know, lament like, oh, woe is me. You know, I wish we hadn't gone. You know, war is bad. It's not. But from a na national security standpoint, we have not asked ourselves, what does being in that region do to help our national security? What is in it for us? And why are we there? And if we're going to be there, let's stay there. Let's create regional stability so we don't have to keep going back. And as we see this drawdown going on in the news now, I think that we are absolutely making the wrong decision. I think we need to stay in the Middle East, build bases, just like we did in Europe after World War II, just like we did in the Pacific Theater after World War II, and be good students of our history, John, so we don't continue to repeat the mistakes. And that's not under the banner of nation building. That's under the banner of regional stability. Because in that region, John, you know the guy with the biggest stick wins. They respect power. And by being over there, having some consistency, that's how we legitimize what we're doing. And we have sustainability in the region, which gives us so many other things. Uh, not just a presence, not just a job for our military, but economically, uh, from a political standpoint, um, opening up sea lanes of communication, commerce, everything. The list is endless. So that's a long answer to a short question, but I'm obviously very passionate about some of the decisions we're making uh, from, from the political standpoint. I don't try to get too political, but I can't help but share my opinions on this because I am one of those guys that fought over there repeatedly, much, much, much as many did. You know, points well taken. You know, of course, we can debate some of the politics, you know, ad nauseum. And we see the divisiveness that that leads us to, you know. So I'm a non-combat Army guy, and I was an NCO. And so, you know, but I, what I do know about combat, what I've heard from guys like you and some of the ladies that we've had on the show, is that it is, you know, moments of intense, you know, uh, chaos. And then, you know, and then moments of, I don't know if you'd call it serenity. But, you know, can you think of any time over there, any certain instance where there was some levity. Yeah, and as, as I wrote in Echo and Ramadi, it is moments of extreme chaos punctua punctuated by periods of extreme boredom. That's how I captured it when I wrote the book. Uh, but there there are some, some times where laughter is the best uh, remedy for any situation. And leave it to the Marines, uh, to the young soldiers, to make the best out of a bad situation and i'll share i'll share one with you which i thought was great um 
I read through these essays. So when we floated back from Iraq, we were on amphibious shipping again. We sailed back to California, and I assigned all these essays to the Marines. They fucking hated me for it. They're like, oh, my God, what what is they're doing, man? Are we in college? This is bullshit. And I said, hey, just one page. Just tell me one good thing and one bad thing that happened to you in Iraq. And I did it. You know, there's a method to my madness. It's, it's not just a, it wasn't just a paper drill. I wanted them to write it down and kind of decompress a little bit because we had four weeks on ship. And I thought it would be a good tool uh, as a leader to have them at least expound a little bit on what they experienced. I thought that was important. So one of the great ones I got was from one of the corpsmen, uh, Navy corpsmen, who's one of our medical providers, and his name was Doc Yeva. And he tells this story, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, but the Marines assumed a rooftop position at one of the outposts, and they were fighting. And it was pretty heavy contact. They're slinging rounds back and forth. The enemy's trying to close on the objective. And then there would be these lulls in the battle where the enemy would be regrouping, or they'd be reloading ammo, or they've been killed, or they'd try and reattack. And so during these periods of uh, quiet, the Marines on top of the roof, since Doc wasn't carrying a weapon, he was a medical provider. He carried a pistol for his own safety, but they say, Doc, run downstairs and give us some snacks. And Doc likened it to a halftime at the Super Bowl where he was tasked with running to the kitchen and grabbing bags of chips and, and rip it energy drinks and sodas and waters for the Marines up top of the roof. And he said they would sit around there and just count the minutes until they would be under fire again. But, I mean, it's times like those where – the young guys, they just make the best of it. I thought it was hilarious to equate moments in, in battle and equating that to the halftime Super Bowl show. It was crazy. But, you know, in Ramadi, for these young guys, it was the Super Bowl. It was a Super Bowl of being in the infantry for fighting. And that city really defined what we knew uh, about the definition of the word fighting in and of itself. That's a great story. You know, yeah, and leave it to the Marines to come up with something like that, and especially with a corpsman. And that's a great that's a great story. And let me ask you this: so you say it, you you originally wrote the book Echo and Ramadi not as a catharsis, but as as a story about what really happened. But and then you've you, you know you launched it almost a year ago, and you have been traveling around quite a bit. You know how has that journey been for you uh, around the country? You mentioned several of the people that you've been with, but. For you personally, you know, tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure it's become cathartic in a ways. Well, it it's humbling. That's really the best word I could use to describe it because you're talking to a kid that barely graduated high school with a 1.24 GPA, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And to be surrounded and in the company of so many great people, and, and I have met some some pretty notable figures like, H.R. McMaster, former national security advisor, and some celebrities and public figures. And that list is long, and it's impressive, I guess. And I'm honored to be asked to speak at prestigious uh, organizations like the Nixon Library and the Reagan Ranch Center and, and so many others to be the keynote speaker at San Francisco Fleet Week for all the Marines and sailors. It's It's been really really humbling. That's really the only word I can, I can use to describe it. But the people that really stand out to me are the young Marines and soldiers or fellow veterans and family members who endured all of that fighting that had deployed multiple times. And they'd read the book or they'd heard me speak and, you know, they just pull me aside and, and, and they share a part of their story. And the writer in me wants to like write it all down and like, Oh, this is going to be another book. Or this is to be an, an article or this, you know, it, it just wraps me up every time I hear one of these stories. And I'd love to share all those stories. And, and I think through that journey, John, that's been one of the cool things is it does allow me to keep sharing these stories of our nation's true heroes in the families, whether it's through an op-ed and, you know, USA today or in you know Fox news or whatever, uh, I think that by hearing those stories, it's been, it's just been really heartening to me to know that these people trust me with their story and they know that I'm going to tell the story right when and if I do. And as a leader, I think it, it really, you never, you never seek this out. No one ever teaches you this about 
you know, validation. It's not something we seek out, but I, you have to be honest at some point in your life and say it is validating to know that they still hold me in esteem that I'm continuing to lead them to this day because my warrant and my commission didn't expire when I left Ramadi, didn't expire when I left the Marine Corps. I, I still feel a responsibility to lead the young Marines and, and soldiers and the families to this day. And I, I'm very privileged to do that. And I think that it's something that I'm lucky to have a capacity to do. And I use that word a lot, capacity, because not everyone has that capacity. A lot of people leave that environment and they just leave it behind or they shut the door and they don't want to open it up. And it does take certain people with the capacity to stay engaged with the military community, stay engaged with our goals, our families who lost so much, stay engaged with active duty uh, service members to help them transition or do whatever they want to do in life and help them be successful. And I, and I love being able to lead and, and share not only my story, but the wins and the losses. I think that's really what great leaders do is, is by sharing the humility and the failures um, that I've experienced too helps more people than I ever thought would. Wow. You know, can you share, can you think of one story in particular that you've, you know, heard out there on the trail uh, that, that comes to light another story that, that resonated with you? I, man, I got a million of them, John. It's been, I'll share, I'll share a couple of them with you. The, the, the best one that I use with his permission um, is from an army staff sergeant named Phil Morehouse. And this was months ago, right after the book came out. And I shared the story when I speak, so it's so powerful. But I got this email and it says, hey, sir, my name is Staff Sergeant Phil Morehouse. You probably don't remember me, but I was in the administration shop with Task Force 19 Infantry. And I was there the night Corporal Libby was shot, one of my squad leaders. And I remember racing across the street to the combat aid station. And I remember standing there. And I remember your vehicles pulling through. I remember the convoy. And I can hear the sound of the brakes. And I remember the dust surrounding the vehicles. And I remember your Marines getting out of the vehicles, carrying Corporal Libby in their arms. And I remember you. And I remember every step that you took and the look on your face. And those are things I haven't thought about in 12 years. And he, and he goes on to email John, but he ends with something really, really important. And he says simply, yes, we made a difference. And to get that email from Phil was just the most amazing thing to be able to see my leadership, to see the actions of my Marines in a mirror, so to speak, through his eyes. And to, you know, know that by sharing this story, one part of it anyway, that I'd helped him as well. So, it was really, you know, kind of a, a gut wrencher, but uh, it's just those are the things that I get. Um, and those are a little bit heavy. But on the flip side, I get an email from this guy and he says, hey, sir, I'm in the Bahamas and I just finished your book. That was me. And I'm reading through the instant message on Facebook. And he says, I was the EOD tech that rolled through your position the night you blew up all those explosives. And the, the story goes, we were in the middle of the city. We, we found this massive weapons cache of insurgent munitions and rifles and bombs and, you know, uh, suicide vests and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was a mount, like imagine a king size bedroom, just, just piled high. And we had no way to blow this stuff up. And we got on the radio and we were like, we need EOD support. We need these guys to come blow this in place. Dawn was just around the corner. We didn't want to be standing out in the street with our dicks in our hands, you know, waiting for snipers to take shots at us. And lo and behold, this unit calls us on the radio and says, uh, Longhorn, this is whatever. Request permission to enter friendly lines. So they come through, they drive down the street, they get out of the trucks, we do the meet and greet, and it was their EOD. It was just dumb luck. And we start playing the name game. We're like, where are you guys from? They said, Camp Pendleton. We said, we're from Camp Pendleton. We're 2-4. So it's old school week in the middle of Ramadi, middle of the night. And I asked these guys if they had any, any C4 explosives. They could hook us up. 
And they're like, yeah, we got a whole truck full, sir. What do you need? And about, you know, 45 minutes later, it was a massive fireworks show that these guys put on for us. And it was spectacular. But I didn't have time to ask their names or, you know, <laughs> what unit they were with. But this kid who's sitting in the Bahamas on vacation is reading this book. He's like, that's me. So I totally got chill. I was getting chills just telling the story. But that's, again, another, you know, those are two great examples of what I talked about earlier in the show is, this power of human connection, man, where you don't think you're making an impact. You don't think you're making a difference in the moment. And sometimes it takes a year or five or 10 or sometimes 15 years. Sometimes you never see it, but you make an impact. And those stories are just really great examples of how, how that happens. Absolutely. You know, it humanizes it. And, you know, I've heard from combat veterans that were, you know, that rushed the beaches on D-Day and they've said, uh, you know, the story of film, you know, that first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan and how, you know, it brought back so many vivid memories for so many of the combat veterans. But I think, Scott, what you've mentioned here, which makes it so very real to so many people that have read the book and want to read the book, and we'll get it, we'll get a little bit to that in a second, but, you know, it humanizes it and it makes it worthwhile when you can have that human connection because, and people that haven't been there that read that story, there's that serious connection. So, you know, there's definitely a benefit to telling the stories because it reminds us of, of our humanity. You know, how do you think that your book is helping people? Well, I think the book helps for them to recount uh, some of the actual events that happened, uh, because it is a nonfiction book, although it, it really reads like a novel. The, the story in there is important because when you're at, at the, at lower levels, you know, when you're that young guy, you don't see the big picture. You don't know why you're fighting. You don't know where you're at on the map some days. So to really explain it and to let them understand what was happening at each level, what was happening at the platoon commander's level or the company first sergeant or the company commander or the full colonel, the decisions they were making, I think are important to really kind of shine some light for those guys and just pull back the curtain. And, and there's a lot of guys that have, within my company, especially an echo company, that said, damn, sir, I had no idea you were dealing with all that bullshit. And I said, yep, there's certain things you just don't talk about and you don't have to because their job isn't to ask questions why their, their job is to accomplish a mission, take care of each other and kill the enemy. That's what I expect them to do. And I, I made sure that they were able to do that. And, and the Marine Corps was, uh, made sure they were able to do it through their training. And I made sure they did it through my leadership uh, and e every level of leadership from the platoon sergeants to the squad leaders to those lieutenants and my leadership philosophy was simple we will fight we will train hard and we will win and that was it it wasn't some page-long soliloquy posted up in the locker room or above the pissers in the bathroom john it was short because we were all we had and we were all that was going to take care of each other and that's what i wanted to remember and in the worst times all I could envision was two young soldiers or two young Marines on a rooftop and they're battling it out, slugging it out with the enemy. And one of them just looks at each other, you know, Scott and John, private Scott and John on the roof. And I'm like, John, it's getting pretty bad up here. What, what should we do? And he looked at me and said, I don't know. What would the CO want us to do? Simple win. He'd want us to win. And that's all I wanted the boys to do as they were crushing it day in and day out was to win. And they did. Because if there was a metric of success, absolutely, if it was killing bad guys, that's one metric of success. We were absolutely killing more of them than they did of us. And that was the truth. But my real metric of success was bringing as many Marines home alive as possible, John. And I think we did that um, because of the training, because of the collective brotherhood that we shared and the chemistry that was kind of boiling over in that company, just a bunch of really unique characters that had a sense of humor and they had love for each other and uh, an understanding of what was going on and the severity of the situation. That's really what won the day for us at the end of it. And um, just couldn't be more proud of those guys. And it, it's really made me look back through 
you know, the time, not just writing the book, but, you know, all my experience in the Marine Corps as a leader to really understand that a lot of the things I missed as a leader um, or wanted to apply more of were those things that I learned that only combat really proves uh, to cure. And those are the important things um, about leadership, not not the things that are listed on charts and, you know, leadership traits and principles that they, they teach us, but, you know, words like love and compassion and caring and understanding. Reading those words in between the lines, that's what makes great leaders. And those aren't taught to us in the schoolhouses and the textbooks professional warriors attend. We have to learn those on our own. And I think you learn those by being surrounded by so many great people. And that's been something that I think has not been relevatory for me. Uh, I think I'd like to think that I applied those uh, when I commanded and when I led Marines. But I think it's probably just more apparent to me now of the importance. Definitely some great points to point, you know, that you 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 talk about Scott, you know, we've been at, you know, these recent conflicts, American fighting forces have been out there, you know, in conflict for almost 20 years now. And there are a lot of books out there that have been written by, you know, former Marines like yourself and soldiers and airmen and, you know, Navy personnel. And, you know, why, why echo and Ramadi? Why would I want to pick up a copy of echo and Ramadi? Well, it's an amazing book about leadership about team building, about overcoming adversity, but it's really an amazing story about the people and really understanding where they come from in this, again, that remarkable chemistry that I just talked about that, that we shared and how that didn't just stop when we left Ramadi. It, it still is in existence today. We still stay extremely connected through that shared brotherhood that through that shared adversity that we gained only through seeing the worst of humanity through seeing the worst of what war has to offer that the things that people create and to still stay as connected as we are today i think is really remarkable uh the fact that our goals our families still stay connected to us they still reach out to us and, and we love them because they're such an important part of who we are and how we continue to heal by staying connected. My, my good friend, Josh Collins, who's a Army's uh, Green Beret, he, he says the best, you know, connection isn't a cure. Uh, you know, so if, if you're staying connected, all these problems that we've dealt with, with post-traumatic stress and anxiety or isolation, just connect, man. Just there's so many great groups out there. And that's one of the reasons why we started Save the Brave was to help veterans who were struggling with post-traumatic stress. And we do that through outreach programs to help them come together in a safe environment where they can heal. And it's not about getting together and telling war stories or what you did. It's just really unplugging from all that and reconnecting with the brotherhood who really, without words sometimes, can really understand where you're at. And through those programs, John, if listeners want to find out more, go to savethebrave.org and, and help us out. But we get so many great stories back from those veterans that say, if it wasn't for that fishing trip or that camping trip or that outreach program, I wouldn't have the job that I have today. I was able to pull myself out of the funk and recalibrate my goals and my ambition and just understand what's important. And they've gotten jobs out of it. They've gotten you know, better family lives out of it. And, you know, we, we help so many, so many veterans hundreds a year. It's just been remarkable to be able to do that. And that's one of the things I love to do because again, at the beginning and the end of every day, I, I just love helping veterans. That's definitely, um, you know, the, the epitome of the, the mission continues. You pointed out earlier about how it takes a special person, you know, some guys, they ETS, you know, they terminate their service, they get out and they, they don't go back. And then it takes a certain person to continue with that mission. Obviously, uh, you're very passionate. Save the Brave is doing some incredible things. Uh, you know, was there any part, any in your book in particular, was there any part that was extremely tough for you to write about? Um, I, I'd probably say 
the first chapter sharing, you know, the death of Corporal Libby, um, it was tough. Uh, we've lost Marines to suicide in my company. Um, too many that I, that it's hard for me to talk about. Uh, but I did share one of the stories of one of our squad leaders, Corporal Simon Litke, and I wrote the chapter about his tragic death, um, when he took his own life in, uh, 2015. And uh, yeah, it was extremely tough. Uh, I mean, if I called his mom and dad, Bob and Nikki, uh, you know, a dozen times, it was probably double that just to ask them if it was all right for me to tell that story. And every time they came back on the phone and they said, Scott, absolutely. This, this has to be shared. And I mean, right there, that capacity to lose a, a son or any kid to suicide, just to lose a kid and, and to be able to, to share that and, and to allow someone else to share that story, this, this very personal heart wrenching story, I think just takes a lot of capacity. And again, they are always here for us. And, you know, sharing those stories uh, were probably the toughest sharing part of my own, um, my own failures, I think was difficult. And when I wrote the book, I had this tendency to write about the Marines and their exploits and the, and the fighting and the, and some of the tragedy and the highs and lows, the wins and losses. And when my editor came back to me, Sylvia Mendoza, she said, Scott, there's not enough of you. So I had to go back in and I had to really, as they say, you got to dig deep as a writer. You, you do. You really have to figure out, well, what is it that I'm not giving of myself? And there came a point in the book, John, where I had pulled so many stories, 7,500 interviews from my Marines and the families. And I really felt a responsibility uh, to share a part of myself, too. So that that was tough. Um, but I think through that as well, it really made me more human to the Marines I led. And I think that being authentic and being honest, uh, when you write or especially when you share an intimate part of your life, I think that's, that's really difficult, man. Uh, you know, when I pulled that whole thing together, that whole chapter and I, I dropped it down in front of, uh, my wife, I said, Hey, I'm putting this in the book. And she didn't say a word. She just read it. And she said, you sure you want to put this in there? I said, I got to put it in there. And that's the type of, of commitment I had to sharing this story. That's why it was so important. And that's why I've gotten so much great feedback from my readers and, you know, why the books, you know, gotten awards and it, you know, it was, it's been a bestseller. Um, it's just, it's been amazing, but, uh, it took, it took a lot of effort. There was, there were some struggles there. Trust me. Well, you know, thank you for that, that honesty and that, that candor, you know, you mentioned your wife and so often, you know, these stories are about the fighting people and, and then so, so often, you know, our families get overshadowed. I know that you're a father and I know that you're, you're obviously married, but, you know, tell us the support you received from your family. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is important when you talk about the families and we we see the the patriotism on mainstream media about the soldiers that fight, the Marines and the ribbons and the parades and recognizing them, you know, the hero of the week on Fox News. Well, once a week isn't enough for me. I got news for you. But for every one soldier that goes and fights, they're, they're leaving behind an entire family. So there's you know, wife or a husband or mom and dad or sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. So it's not just that one person that's affected by that one deployment in combat or two, three, four, five, six, seven deployments in combat for some of these young guys and women. So those families get left behind and it's an immense sacrifice that they take on because they got to pay all the bills. They got to do both roles, mommy, daddy, and it, it, it's a lot of, of pressure. And especially you think about that, these young Marines who are 18, 19 years old, some of them uh, make the decision to get married at a very young age, too. So now they have a wife and kid who's very young out fending for themselves or they're in places in middle America like Iowa or Illinois that don't have bases around them. So they don't even have the military support structure. So 
I say to any listener, if, if you know a military family that is close by, reach out to them. Ask them if they need something. And if they say, we're good, we don't need anything, figure out a way to give them something. Do something for them. Because just like soldiers and Marines, they're very proud, they're very independent, and they'll never ask for help. So find a creative way to really help them out. I, I think that that's my challenge for any listener this episode is if you're in one of those situations, you know a military family, do something. Don't just take it for face value that, they, that they're good, they can stand on their own. It's always nice to have a helping hand. So it's, I think that's so great that you reminded me and reminded our listeners to talk about families. It's, it's huge. That's a good point. And thank you for sharing that. You know, what are your future projects? What do you have planned, Scott? And where do you see yourself in five years? I'm writing my second book right now, which is another great story of military heroics. Um, I'll leave it at that. I'm also working on a second, a, a third book, which is more of a, a point piece, topical. And currently, the closest alligator in my boat, John, is a full-length feature documentary that I'm really, really excited about. Um, I've got some support from a great friend who's a very well-known Hollywood figure and producer. And when I pitched him the concept for the documentary, I got halfway through the pitch and he interrupted me as he normally does. He's like, stop, I'm in one million percent. And from there, we've been getting a ton of uh, other executive producers and, and donors and supporters to get on board with that. And um, we can't talk about it right now because we're still in uh, development. But, uh, you know, it's it's just amazing. Uh, and again, I, just like writing a book, I, I don't know anything about filmmaking. Uh, I'll admit that. But the secret to my success has always been surrounding myself with smart people. And this is no different. And also doing the work, you know, putting yourself out there, putting in the hours, doing the research, doing the logistics, doing the bills and making sure you put the time in to do the work because books don't write themselves. It takes people sitting at a keyboard, typing, making sure it gets done and everything you do, you have to be a self learner. And that type of attitude, I think, is something that I carried with me after 24 years of, of service in the Marine Corps. But uh, I've been really lucky and I am super excited to, again, just keep sharing great stories of our nation's vets. Uh, I'm still writing uh, op-eds for ConnectingVets.com. I'm, do, I'll throw some out there. I was just on the cover of USA Today. Um Fox News, Intercom, Town Hall. I love just sharing more topical pieces, more current event stuff. I just love to write. I, lo I love to give my opinion and really think that I'm, I'm helping someone out. And I, I say that not to be considered the voice of veterans. I am absolutely not the voice of veterans. I never envisioned myself on some pulpit saying Scott Husing's word is gospel for all veterans. I speak for myself. And I think that when I do that, there's a lot of veterans that really appreciate that because, again, not everyone has to be a writer. Every, everybody's got their own skill. This is just something that I enjoy, and I like to think I'm, I'm pretty good at. I mean, people pay me for it, so I must be doing something right. But it, it, it's something I really enjoy. So in five years, I think that I would probably love to still be writing. I'd probably love to be involved as, in some sort of capacity as a technical advisor to military movies um and also if we're still fighting uh, i'd love to be an embedded journalist with those units uh making sure that those stories are being captured on the scene so they're told quickly and they're told accurately to the american public because i hate that our vietnam vets especially and, and even some of our world war ii and korea vets they had to wait 50 years man to get their stories told and I think that was a sad, you know, a sad state of affairs for this nation that they didn't want to hear those stories. So for this generation of warfighters, I feel like I'm that guy that's going to be able to take their stories and tell it the right way and to make it informative and entertaining if need be to the consumer, uh, to that guy who gets you your Starbucks coffee or, you know, the girl that's changing your tires that you know, the tire dealership and, you know, so they have an understanding. I think that's important to really 
articulate that in a way. So that's kind of where I see myself in five years. Well, you definitely have um, a lot of aspirations. I know you're going to get there. You have a lot on your plate, and it's definitely going to keep you busy. And anything, obviously, we can do, you know, we're there for you, Scott. But let me ask you this. What is what does freedom mean to you? Well, until you've not had it, I think no one really has a, a true understanding of what that word means, what freedom is. Until you've traveled and seen some of the things that other countries, other cultures have to deal with, you really have a hard time being objective uh, and, and really having an appreciation for what you have here. So I could go for an entire podcast, John, to tell you what my definition of freedom is based off of the you know experiences that I've had in my life since a very young age. Uh, but I've seen the worst conditions where people don't have freedom, where you have to wait in line for an hour for gas in one of the most oil-rich nations in the world, or wait for food for a day in, in some of the food-starved nations of the world. It's really humbling, and it really makes me appreciative and very grateful for everything we have as Americans. And just like you, I am unapologetically American, John. I, I make no bones about that. You don't have to be on the left side or the right or Republican or Democrat to be American. And I think we have strayed so far away from that with all of this, this circus we see saloon across mainstream media that we forget we're all Americans and we need to come together. It shouldn't take parking another couple of airplanes into some skyscrapers to bring this country together. I'd like to think that we're smart enough that we can do it on our own despite having some major tragedy without some major loss that bonds us and unifies us as a nation. So freedom for me is being able to continue to enjoy what I do today, uh, to be able to do a podcast and not worry about anything around me, uh, to know that there are still young men and young women who are willing to raise the right hand, serve our nation, walk the streets as first responders and protect us, and to really honor what they do and understand that today, you and I, we sit as those who are protected by those who are making that sacrifice. And they're young men and women. These are the millennials that constantly get raked across the coals because they're too soft or they're snowflakes. I got news for you people. They are not. They are on those ships right now. They are flying those planes right now. They are senior officers right now. They are the policemen and women that guard our streets. They're millennials. So have faith and be comfortable knowing that uh, your your leadership that you share with those younger generations is really what's going to continue to make this nation great, what's going to ensure our freedom. So if you're not sharing your lessons, wins and losses with those younger generations, you're not leading. You're failing them because... If you really want a successful future generation, you have to be a good steward of your experience, of your history, and share that. I think it's vital, John, to continue to enjoy the freedom that we have in America. Well, you definitely reminded me of a lot of great things about this country. And, you know, you're so right. I am a lot like you, unapologetically American. Uh, It's okay to be American. Uh, despite what's been going on, like you say, over the past several years, they want us to feel less than, and I don't, because our ancestors came here for something better, and I think we've been commissioned uh, to leave it in a better place, and that, that does take leadership. You know, and you mentioned the the boys and girls, the young men and women in uniform, and, you know, let's just say one of those young persons is out there now listening to you and this podcast, and, and let's just say they're in a bad place. You know, as Scott Husing, the published author, Marine major, the father, the husband, what would you say to that person listening in that may be in a bad place right now? Connection is the cure, just like Josh says. There's so many great resources that you you can't allow yourself to get to that point of despair. Don't let yourself get to that point of isolation, which leads to that final step of hopelessness. There's always hope. And there are so many people around you that you don't even know. You don't know me. You don't know John, any anonymous listener, but there are people like us right next door to you that are willing to help. 
and you have to reach out for help sometimes. And there's a great vessel that floats on the sea of veterans and families and supporters who want to help you. And they're willing to throw that rope over. And sometimes they're willing to jump in and save you. But ultimately, you have to reach out and grab the rope. You have to grab that hand. And if you do that, I'm telling you, it's going to be an amazing thing. And I think if anyone is at that point, they just need to know that there's so many people fellow veterans and family members that care and love and support everything you do that any loss like that from suicide or from abandonment is just devastating to those people that really, really do love you. And I I think that that takes a lot of, a lot of thought sometimes for people to realize that. But um, I think that's the best advice I could give John. That's awesome advice. Um, How can, Anybody listening, get a hold of your book. Where do they need to go to get Echo and Ramadi? They can get it on Amazon. Go to Amazon.com. You can get it on hard copy. It's an Audible Kindle. And coming this October, it'll be available in soft cover, paperback. We're going into our third print. If you want to be involved helping veterans, go to SaveTheBrave.org and click on SaveTheBrave.org. Make a donation if you want. Learn about the team. Learn about the guys we help. If you want to learn about me, you can follow me on social media at Echo and Ramadi on Instagram. And I'm all across social media, but follow me on Instagram at Echo and Ramadi. And I keep you updated with all my travels and the cool people I meet and guys like John and the podcast. It's all there. So, you know, thanks again, John, for having me on the program. I'm always glad to help you with anything you do. We've got so many friends in common and so many shared goals and uh, passions that, you know, you're one of the great people in my life, man. I appreciate you. Well, thanks Scott. And likewise, you know, you've mentored me, you've actually taught me off the ledge a couple of times. So all I can say is this, that, you know, we have the mission, the mission does continue. You've got to get the book echo and Ramadi. It's a great read about leadership and about the human element of uh, combat, but about life itself. And uh, just humbled and honored to be your friend, Scott and look forward. And I do want to let you know, you are the first repeat interviewee on our podcast. So you made history with me here today. And all I can say, I'm right gonna put, on, I, I'm going to get a free t-shirt or something. You're gonna, I'm going to yes. send something to you, man. I'll send it in the box, yes. but, uh, but it's all it. good. And, uh, you know, just continue on with the mission, sir. And anything we can do to help you, uh, God bless America and God bless those Marines. And, uh, we do live in the greatest nation in, on earth and, uh, I'm proud of it. Thank you. Okay, Semper Fi, John. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. They're not broken.